This morning, we're going to wrap up our short series on wisdom at work. We have been asking, why should we work? Why should we go day after day and uh, push through all of the problems that face us at work? As the cartoon says, why should we continue to play this elaborate game of fetch? And uh, so we've inquired of God's wisdom, and we've learned that work has a powerful role in our lives, and that even the pain of working is profitable. There is profit in all toil, struggling through difficulties and persisting in those things. So we've gotten all of that perspective and encouragement from wisdom. Now we're going to ask a question of priorities. We're going to ask, when should the work stop and we rest in the work that we have done and be confident that that work is enough? And when do we, when do we reach the point where we say, I need to set the tools down now. I need to step back from my work, walk away from the shop, away from the office, and let God, who is my provider, provide what I need. When is that spot? I mean, we've been talking about persisting in work, persisting through pain, motivations to do that and and to keep going and not give up. We've been talking on those themes, but there is a very important issue here about ultimately what work is for. If work does not result in contentment, then we are working for the wrong things. Let me put it this way. Your work ethic serves your priorities. Whatever you think the highest priority is, your work ethic serves that. And so if you think your highest priority is investing for retirement, your work ethic will serve that higher priority. If you think that uh, your, your highest priority is to get married, then your work ethic will serve that priority. If you think your work ethic is to just provide your basic needs, it is my, it is my highest priority just to survive, your work ethic will serve that. Whatever your highest priority is, Your work ethic will serve it. Now, here's what I want to say and turn that around. Whatever you are working for today, whatever you have been working for all of last week, whatever that highest priority your work ethic serves, whatever that is, that is telling you what you worship. Because your work ethic is clear, straightforward, factual information about whom you serve. It is telling you, like a mirror held up to your face, it is telling you what your highest priority is. Is it a house? A certain kind of car? A certain lifestyle? A a certain standard of living? Is it 
a certain status in relation to your friends and family. Whatever it may be, whatever that highest priority is, your work ethic will serve it. It will serve it in a dedicated way. You will knock yourself out. You will run yourself into the ground to serve that highest priority. And so, having said all of that, I'm here to say this. The work ethic in our culture has become a false gospel. Your work ethic can serve your highest priority, but your work ethic cannot make you righteous. If you talk to people about um, what they are confident in morally and spiritually, very often they will cite their work ethic. I grew up with a strong work ethic. I knew how to get in there and get things done. And I I don't give up. I stay motivated. I work through problems. I persist when I am in pain. I know how all of that works. And I am here to tell you this morning that the wisdom we received from God about all of that, about all of those motivations, will not make you righteous before God. And if what we end up saying after a series like this is kind of patting ourselves on the back as we walk out of church saying, got it, check the box, strong work ethic, in good with God, this is my righteousness, we will have missed the whole point. Because your work ethic only serves. That's all it does. Your work ethic is a slave. Whatever your highest priority is, your work ethic will serve that highest priority. And you may sacrifice many things to it. So we're going to talk about what that highest priority ought to be and what wisdom says, really, what work is for. What is the purpose of it? And once we know that, then we can find that zone where we can say, enough, I'm setting down the tools. I'm going to go home. And I am going to do different things. I'm going to rest. I am going to put my faith in my provider. I'm going to do all of these things because my work here is done. We need to reach that level of contentment to say, it is enough. So we're going to see that wisdom this morning. We're going to look at two verses from Proverbs 15. I'm going to make some comparisons of um, different conditions of heart and attitude. And then we're going to look at an example, a cautionary tale of one man, Jacob, from the Old Testament, who had a strong work ethic but it did not make him righteous. In fact, it made him miserable because the highest priority that that work ethic served brought dissension, disunity, and misery into his life in its most intimate ways. So we're going to look at that, then we'll make some evaluations. Let's dive into Proverbs 15, 
verses 16 and 17. Let's make some comparisons. The verses read, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A lot in the immediate context that uh, Paul read for us earlier in the service about um, cheerfulness, gladness. Uh, I look here at verse 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. So that's uh, something about cheerfulness, discontent, uh, and and the comparison and contrast between those. Um, Verse 15 Um, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. And so there's a lot in the immediate context here about the emotional outlook overall that we have toward our life. And this is warning us that uh, if that overall emotional outlook is afflicted, downtrodden, bitter versus an overall outlook that is glad, cheerful, thankful. Uh, These are indicators of what is going on with us spiritually, and it gets right down to the root of the matter, and that is contentment. And that's where we get verses 16 and 17, two verses that compare with each other and that compare and contrast within each other. They are both saying kind of the same thing, but it's where they are different that I find it most interesting. So let's look closely at verse 16. This is about treasure. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So, Let's take that phrase, the fear of the Lord, and let's not miss what is being said here. Remember that when we started this study in the book of Proverbs all the way back in in February, we started with Proverbs 1-7. Maybe some of you remember what that verse says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Very important verse. That's the theme of the the entire book of Proverbs. And so what we're looking at in verse 16 is Solomon rooting this verse all the way back to the theme. If you have a little, but you have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all knowledge, which is that heart attitude, that change of heart toward God that is the beginning of knowing everything and without which you can know nothing. If you've got that, that is better than having great treasure and trouble. So let's think about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that change of heart where instead of despising God's instructions, despising his wisdom, hating his rebuke, chasing, chafening, chafening, chastening, 
chafing at his chastening. I actually didn't mean to say that, but I got so turned around. If, if we have all of those old attitudes of despising and feeling hostile against God, and those change, and all of a sudden we find ourselves on the flip side of it, saying, God has spoken. And the thunder of that voice is a sound I need to respect. And when that thunderclap comes, I need to shake. And when that truth hits me, I need to peel my eyes and see it for what it is. And when that mirror comes up from the Word of God and shows me who I am, that is God speaking to me, and I need to say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. You know what this is? This is the gospel in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When your heart changes toward God, when the voice of the wisdom of God, in Proverbs chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ unveiled in the New Testament is the wisdom of God. When that voice hits you and your heart changes toward the Lord, you soften, you become receptive to what he says. At that moment, it's the beginning of knowledge. That's when you really start to live and you really start to know things and you start to make sense of of life. So we're really talking about Uh, the, the core things of the gospel of Jesus Christ here. And uh, I think as I, as I look at this passage and as we think about the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's telling us how far away from this we are as evangelicals in America today. Because the gospel to us is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's going to make you happy. He's going to make you fulfilled. He's going to enrich you. He's going to make you healthy. He's going to do all of these things for you that you can't do for yourself. And so the gospel in America has become this um, kind of sickening Um, saccharine, sweet, sticky mess of a message. It basically said, says God is all about you. And the fear of the Lord says, no, I am all about God. It works the other way. He doesn't exist to glorify me and lift me up and do what I want. He is not the genie in the bottle. I exist to give him glory, period. I exist to honor him, lift up his name, to obey him. That is why I am here. And so the fear of the Lord is that change of heart by the grace of God where we realize this is who I am. 
I despise the things that God teaches and I need to listen to what he says. It's that change of heart that moves from despising to fearing. And uh, so we're right at the heart of the gospel here. And Solomon says in verse 16, it's better to have a little with the fear of the Lord. Why is that? And do we really believe that? This goes right to the heart of who we think we are serving with our work, what our work is for. If our work is to build up that great treasure, whatever priority that may represent. Maybe it's the, the satisfaction of having a high-status career. Maybe it's the sense of security, of having a great investment por portfolio. Maybe it's just bragging rights. Who knows? Whatever that highest priority is, this is saying you can have great amounts of it, but if you've got trouble with that great treasure, you're in second place. You're, you're living a third-rate life. You're not uh, fulfilling your full potential. Your full potential is to have a little, better to have a little, with the fear of the Lord. You say, well, how can I do that? Contentment is the word that we're looking for here. This is the description that says, I have enough. It is enough for me. And this is good, what I have. And I'm going to enjoy what I have, and I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going to trust the Lord to supply what I need in the future. I'd like to show you something. Um, I believe it's in Proverbs chapter 30, but it just occurred to me to go here. Proverbs 30. Yep. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. These are my highest priorities, practically in my life. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Who's the top priority here? What is the work ethic serving in these verses? What is the, the aspiration of this person? It is to have enough and receive it from the Lord's hand and having received it, to give the Lord the glory he deserves. So who is being served? The Lord. This is what the priorities uh, look like when they are rightly ordered. Let's go back to chapter 15. So this says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. It is very easy to look at ourselves personally and to say, 
well, I'm the one who has a little, but those people over there, they have the great treasure. Let's not do that this morning. Let's look at this proverb from the point of view of being the most fantastically wealthy nation, not just on the face of the earth, but in the history of the world. There is no society that lives at the level at which we live. There is no society that consumes at the level we consume. None. And it's not just the world as we look at it right now, ever in the history of the world. Middle class America is a marvel. It's some kind of golden age economically in the history of the world. Now, having said that, your response when I say that is probably to say, well, if this is some kind of golden age, <laughs> why? Why is it so bad, this golden age? Well, aren't you paying any attention? There's energy costs. There's the water bill. There's health care costs. There's this. There's that. The cost of college education. The cost of this. And it's all going up. And it's all... Everything we do gets consumed. And we can never just keep it a little bit. It's always just getting taken away from us. Our hard labor and toil. You know what that is? We're right here in verse 16. We have great treasure and trouble. So, kind of puts the phrase a little in some perspective, at least for me. Because it, it makes me say, what I have was not given to me to meet my fleshly top priorities. What I have needs to be turned into the service of the Lord, whom I fear, whom I love, whom I want to glorify. So let's look at the next contrast, verse 17. Now this is not about treasure. It's changed the image. It's now about feasting. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. You ever been to a great feast with people who hate you? <laughs> you, ever, you ever gone to one of those? Like every Thanksgiving. Okay. <laughs> wow. My goodness. So Thanksgiving is what popped into everybody's mind, right? It's just that a few of you were honest enough to blurt it out. <laughs> I'm remembering this moment. How good is it to feast amidst hatred? It's an evil. It's a trial. It's not just an irony. It's horrible because the very feast makes you sick. 
and you can't enjoy the food. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. Okay, it's simple. It's not much. It's not plentiful. But we love each other. And so here we are sharing this. You can enjoy that. But a great feast you can't enjoy if there's hatred. So these two proverbs are paired together to make basically the same comparison between having a great deal of material things, uh, enough to feast, a great treasure, and having a little. Small dinner, just vegetables. I mean, that sounds horrible. Uh, That is just not going to work for me. Give me some bologna or something. But I draw the line at spam. I'm just saying, you know, it's possible to be simple without just the vegetables, but I'm, I'm just saying here. Better is that little with love than the feast with hatred. So what is this doing? These two proverbs, they are shifting our priorities. They are demanding it. They are not leaving us an out. They are saying, change what you strive for and do it now. Because the more you work for that great treasure that comes with trouble and the great feast that comes with people who hate you, the more you drive toward that, the worse it's going to get and the more you're going to be the slave of your idol. The thing I notice in the pairing of these two is that you actually get the entire law of God, according to Jesus Christ, summed up in these two Proverbs. Do you see it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your work ethic. Love him with all of it. And... That being the greatest commandment, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is saying in a very deep way, change your priorities and change them now. Uh, It was a fun week for us uh, because Dylan uh, turned 16 and I was reflecting... uh, this week on just oh, how quickly that went by, but just how uh, how little we had when we took him home from the hospital in 2000. Um, we didn't own a home. Um, I think we had one car. Uh, all of our furniture was... Uh, given to us by various family members. Uh, We didn't have very much. But um, when Dylan was born, and he began to grow, and we began to wonder, you know, how are we going to provide for all of the needs for this little guy? And then then Malcolm came along in 2005, and uh, now we've got to provide for him. How are we going to do all of that? 
Are you making faces at me? <laughs> uh, and uh, there is one priority that in those years I determined, because this was modeled for me by my parents, a priority never to compromise. Work does not come before Bridget, Dylan, and Malcolm. Done. They come before work. Uh, now, do you know how difficult that is when you're living in the parsonage and you're on call? It requires you to say no to some things so that you can preserve the time for the essential things. And why were they and are they the priority? Because the Lord is the priority. And if, if I die tomorrow, you can get another pastor. You can. But there's only one father. It's irreplaceable. And so the Lord set up this order of things. And we believed and continue to believe that it is right to keep his order in place. Um, so I would simply say that verses 16 and 17 here in chapter 15 are deeply true and we've seen it. I think you've probably seen it too. And given that, if we set these priorities and set our work ethic to glorify God in everything that we do, then the little that we have or the great treasure that we have that we might think is a little will become a source of joy, gratitude, and we're describing here contentment. But it's that hedonic treadmill where you've got to get more and more, bigger, better, shinier, this year's colors, this year's style, this year's uh, car model, this year's... Th and, and more and more and more. You realize... We are being sold the biggest bill of goods in the history of the world because this is what marketing, advertising, all of these things, this is founded on your discontent. And if you are contented, they will invent a way to make you discontented. And so we are in this way fighting our society at a very deep level. Verses 16 and 17 here are the whole law of God, the whole expectation of God summed up in a very few words in relation to wealth and work. What is your work ethic serving? Let's look at an example, and it's a cautionary example. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter uh, 29. 
and the example of Jacob. Jacob is learning here. He is learning to follow the Lord. In fact, he's made a deal with the Lord that if the Lord gets him back home to his rich parents and his brother who hates him, if he gets him back there in peace, then the Lord, Yahweh, will be Jacob's God. And he is learning how this works. And so he comes to uh, another part of his family, very far away from his home. And uh, here's Uncle Laban in uh, Genesis 29:15. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? I want to pay you. I want to provide for you. That's only fair. Just because you're family doesn't mean I should take advantage of the fact that you're a sojourner in a foreign land, essentially. So I want to pay you. Verse 16, now Jacob had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Got a mixture of priorities here. His priority at one level is to learn how to serve the Lord. But at another level, his priority is Rachel. Get that girl. Marry her. So, what do you want to work for, Laban asks. And uh, Jacob said to Uncle Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He is a driven, motivated worker. Because every day he sees this beautiful young woman, and he says, six years 364 days, she's going to be mine. Okay, so he's motivated. His, his highest priority is her. See how this is shaping up? His work ethic is powerful, but it is serving that highest priority. Here's what happens. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. I've been checking off the days on the calendar, and we're done. So pay up. So Laban gathered all the people to the place and made a great feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold. You know, so many times in the scriptures, the word behold announces a good thing. <laughs> in this case, behold. This is the wife you didn't want. 
Now, I'd like you to look at this from Leah's point of view. You wake up that morning, and the man who loved you gets a look on his face. What does that feel like? Okay, so what does he do? In the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Uncle Laban is a very affable affable guy. It is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also, in return for serving me another seven years. So, yeah, you've got, you got to watch yourself in Midian. Uh, <laughs> got to read the fine print. Okay, so Jacob is now an abused worker. He's been lied to. Still got the work ethic, but his highest priority has not been met. His highest priority is Rachel. So what's he going to do? You might be tempted to say, what do you expect? He's going to work the next seven years, and he's going to get the girl he loves, because that's the way it's done. They say so in all the movies. It must be true. This is how it's supposed to work. So what else do you expect him to do? What could he have done? Well, about that, one of the things he's going to have to do, learn to do is to take what comes, trust God, and receive good from his hand. With this wife that he wakes up with, she actually loves him deeply. She's devoted to him. She's been waiting for him that seven years. Think of it. What he could have at this moment. And he's at the crossroads. He's got to make a decision. Am I going to become what everybody else in my culture is, a polygamist? Or am I going to trust God? That's his decision. He makes his decision because his highest priority is Rachel. So he took Rachel and served Laban another seven years. What's the, the order here? The highest priority is Rachel, and the work ethic is serving the highest priority. Will his work ethic save him? No. His work ethic is killing him. Because look what happens. This worker becomes unhappy because he has brought division into his, into his household. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was... What's that word? Hated. Think about that. All she is to him 
is a raw deal. That's it. And he treats her that way. Now they're having sex. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, So, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. I want you to watch how this unfolds. It's heartbreaking. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. You know what Reuben means? See? A son. It's heartbreaking. She thinks, I've got it now. I'm going to have his affection. He won't hate me anymore because I've given him his firstborn son. She conceived again, verse 33, and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. So she calls the first son, see, a son. The second one is heard. The Lord heard me. So every time she calls them to come to dinner or whatever, it's God heard me and see a son. And what she's really doing is calling out to her husband, don't you love me? And he doesn't. Verse 34, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, she called his name Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. So she's calling him, Attachment, attachment, come in for dinner. And who's the audience for this? Uh, he's, He's off working building his fortune, doing his thing. He's a hard worker, good man. Brings home the bacon. Well, I guess he wouldn't bring home the... (laughs) Nevertheless, he's bringing home the goat's meat. Thank you. So, now watch this, verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time... I will praise the Lord. You know what she's doing there? She's saying, this isn't going to change, is it? This is what it is. But I have four sons, and I will praise the Lord. She called his name Judah which is uh, like the Hebrew word for praise. And then she ceased bearing. What's happening here? Jacob's off doing his work. He's working hard, and he's going to be very successful. He's going to get rich working for Laban. But he has planted into the foundation of his life dynamite through his favoritism 
One, by not being faithful to the wife that he was given by God. And two, after he sins and brings in the second wife, his highest priority, and works for her, he actively favors the one over the other while still taking sexually from the first one. You know what this is going to do? You know the rest of this story, right? We're going to have 12 sons. And 10 of those are going to sell one of them into slavery. It is going to bring a level of heartbreak and division. Trouble is too mild a word for it into Jacob's life. Why? Because he was a good man, strong work ethic, righteous. Except he was working for the wrong highest priority. Your work ethic will not save you. It will not make you righteous. Your work ethic cannot provide contentment. The scriptures are saying, change that highest priority. Change it now. Do it now. And start building contentment into your life. Because better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Better is a a dinner of herbs instead of a feast with a fattened ox if the herbs come with love. Let's make some evaluation. Here are a couple of questions that I'd like you to use on these issues. First, when I stop working, do I enjoy love? Really? Uh, It becomes a thing... Uh, for both men and women now that we would rather be working than being home. Because being home is just being in the thicket of all the old problems, the old disappointments, the old raw deals. Beloved, that's idolatry. And the wisdom of God is coming into us, is coming into me this morning because this is so easy to get out of focus. It's coming to us and saying, break down that idol and throw it into the fire and replace it with the glory of God. Replace it with that commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Love God with everything you've got. Love each other. So we're, we're just asking this very basic question. Do I enjoy love when I stop working? Or do I keep working because I don't enjoy love and I just want to get out of there? Let me tell you, as a man who has seen things go very well and has things, seen things go very poorly. I've seen growth 
I've seen lean times. I've seen success and acclaim, and I've seen bitterness and slander. I love going home. It's worth it. Build it. Get your priorities right. It's worth it. It's better. I wouldn't trade love at home for anything. Second question. If my priorities were to change to become God's priorities, how will that change my work? Does it change your hours? Does it change your five-year plan? Does it change your goals? Um, What does it do if God's priorities become your priorities? How does that work itself out practically? There will be cost there. You cannot adopt God's priorities and not see a change on the bottom line. It will cost you time. It will cost you living standard. It will cost you career advancement. It will. And we need to do it anyway. Because God is good. And his way is better. And at the end of his way, is that life of contentment where we have peace in our hearts because we know we did what God called us to do. We have peace and contentment in our work when we stop because we've got the people with us to enjoy the fruit of our labors with, even if it's just a little. That is ultimately God's wisdom at work in us bringing us to that place of contentment. I have a number of questions here. So, here we go. Thank you for speaking the truth in love with all boldness and caution according to your fear in the Lord. You're welcome. Um, He is good. Um, I needed this reminder yesterday. (laughs) That's good. Day late and a dollar short. (laughs) Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Thanks for driving it home. Uh, Again, you're welcome. I am with all of these messages really preaching to myself as as much as to you because these things always get out of whack you have to reset them every day and uh, yes godliness with contentment is great gain that's a profit motive uh, operating there and we can serve that end okay what does it look like to work just to avoid the difficulties of our relationships. Um, It can look fantastic. It can look like 
a fat bank account, well-managed funds, shrewd investments, diversified. You can look like all of that. Tricked out to the nth degree. It can look like um, a person who is a profound asset in the community. If you ask community people about that person, they just gush. Oh, that woman is so fantastic. She's so talented. She's so giving. She's always there. So it can look just phenomenal. And the achievements you can get out of this of basically exploiting all of your relationships for the sake of your work life. The, the gain you can get out of that is the approval of the whole community and a high status. But what it looks like when you get home is cold, polite, indifferent, silent, barren, I think I'll just stop with those, because that's grim enough. We could just stop at cold, where everybody's nice, but there's no embrace. And uh, so what does it look like to do that? It looks like um, phenomenal success on the outside and cold politeness on the inside, barren home life. Um, and, you know, painting that picture, um, we're describing a lot of people there. A lot of people where we would say, good people, good for the community, strong work ethic. But what priority are they serving? Um, okay, I've already preached that sermon, so I need to stop. If the work I have chosen or the work that has chosen me is a constant grind filled with frustration, interruption, and disappointment, how can I begin to change my attitude and approach that I might survive or even thrive that God is glorified? Okay. Um, very good question. Because um, part of what we're into today is a sense among corporations, businesses, employers, that if you have a job, um, you are one of the lucky few, and we now own you. And um, so we're expecting you to work constantly. This is a business philosophy. I'm not making this up. Um, there are corporations that I've heard about here in town that make the business so great at the office, you never want to leave, and you don't actually have to because you're fed there. You're provided for. You're entertained. All your friends are there. And, you know, the parties and everything afterwards. The businesses reap tremendous wealth from the fact that workers will work 15 hours a day, six, seven days a week. You know what the families reap? 
despair. Um, you may have to make a decision to be a godly person um, in this kind of environment at where you say the work that is being demanded at this corporation where they're dangling the promotions and all the stuff, that work is ungodly and will destroy my life. And so I am going to pursue another avenue. Scary decision, but you can talk to men and women here who have made that very decision and um, have realized that their work ethic can either serve God or serve idols. And uh, they have made that decision in faith, and they will tell you, never look back. I never look back. Um, in case you think I might be a little insulated from this, um, try having, I'm going to put this in very kind of worldly terms, try having a business where there are no fees, there is no revenue stream, but what is given, and everything is kind of based on personal interaction and, and personal attention. That's the business that I'm in, if you want to put it in those terms. You want to know the temptations to work, 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 work. Drop and get up and do it again. I know those temptations. Because all the same pressures are there in the church business. And the fact is, especially at church, but no less in business, it must be done God's way. And that means work has its place, but the highest priority is the glory of God and the order that he has called us to uphold. So work has a place, and then it stops. And we trust God. And God never lets us down. 